Tonight's subject from Deuteronomy 7 is one that challenges believers and interpreters when they start to consider the commands to conquest and to obliterate the idolatries of the Canaanites. And the challenges tend to be ethical in nature for interpreters from time to time. And they wonder, okay, these commands and this outlook on those people in the Canaanite uh, territory, how is it we should think about what God is commanding them to do? The takeaway from both the beginning of the chapter and near the end of the chapter, as we'll see, is the theme of the conquest. They're poised for this because they're in the plains of Moab. They're on the right side of the Jordan River, and they are going to wait for Moses to die before Joshua, the successor of Moses, will lead them into the Canaan land, that land of promise. It's an occupied land, and there will be people in these fortresses and military establishments prepared to resist the Israelites and be hostile to Yahweh unto death. And that will mean that if they're not going to go quietly and submit their lives to the rule of Yahweh, then the Israelites are going to be given victory by Yahweh over their enemies. And the enemies, who will cry out to their gods and call upon their idols, will find themselves worshiping in vain. The importance of the conquest contains with it here in chapter 7 the warning about how the Israelites should conduct themselves when they're there. And this is a good way to consider holiness and snares and temptations. Preparing ahead of time in our imaginations, what is it that I could face and what will be my response when I'm tempted? But how do I think that through to the end? Why is it that in a certain situation, I'm going to respond this way versus this way? The Israelites are to think through who they are. Most fundamentally, what should guide their ethical deliberations is their identity as a redeemed people of God. They are in covenant with God. And therefore, that should shape both the way they worship in the land and the conduct that they are being tempted to engage in because the pagans in the land are going to be filled with immorality. How are they to prepare themselves? Well, they're not to think through this the first time when they're there looking at an Asherim pole and thinking, that's an Asherim pole. What should I do with that? Instead, they are being prepared ahead of time when you go into the land and when you face these various things, here's my calling on you as a holy people. And in Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 6, let's look at this coming conquest The coming conquest that we heard of read just a moment ago, verses 1 to 6. A series of nations that are going to be listed here. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering, and entering to take possession of it, that's the conquest, that they are going to occupy and inherit this land. And he clears away many nations before you. Now he's going to give a list of nations. There are multiple times in the Old Testament where lists of nations in Canaan are given. They're not always seven. Sometimes they're more, sometimes they're less. Maybe the number seven is chosen because it's a number of completion, symbolically, and that this is a perfect representation, if you will, of the kinds of enemies in the land. Maybe it's something like that. But among them, you will see these nations called the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. These seven nations listed here are in different parts of the land. Some live mostly near the coast. Others live mostly in the hill country. Something like the Jebusites are especially interesting because Jebusites are those associated with the region of Jebus. And Jebus, or Jebus, will later be renamed Jerusalem. 
So the location of the Jebusites is interesting because when David conquers the Jebusites in uh, 2 Samuel, he's going to uh, set apart Jerusalem as the place where the king will rule and the Ark of the Covenant will be brought. Solomon will later build a temple there. These are an example of seven nations that live in this land. We know from Leviticus chapter 18 that these nations are abhorrent before the Lord. These are not innocent nations. It's not as if the Israelites are a people going in and uh, intervening and disrupting the lives of people who are just doing great. Instead, the uh, sins of the Amorites, we're told in Genesis 15, are so great to heaven that at a particular appointed generation to come, God was going to bring judgment upon them. Abraham learned that centuries before Moses. And now Moses is this leader toward this part of the Jordan River where the Israelites are poised to take the promised land. They're going to be the judgment of God on the enemies of Yahweh. These people have been living in idolatry and flagrant immorality. Their sins include not just sexual sins, but the abominable practices of offering their children up to uh, their false gods. Leviticus 18, verses 6 to 24, lists a series of corrupted conduct. And because the wages of sin brings death, sometimes the Lord brings death directly. And in this case of the conquest, the Israelites are the rod of his judgment. You imagine the Israelites as a rod of the judgment of God against the nations in the land. Okay, so verses 1 through 6, the coming conquest, and in verse 2, he continues, or at the end of verses 1, uh, into verse 1 and into verse 2, these seven nations are more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. We're told here that if you added up the strength and the military might of these nations, the Israelites do not stand a chance from an earthly perspective. They are mightier than them. They are greater than, in, in number than the Israelites. The Israelites should not look at the uh, general metrics of the layout of the situation and figure out whether they're going to be successful or not. From a merely metric standpoint, they don't stand a chance. But of course, the point is that God is leading an inferior people into the land that by using them as his rod of judgment, God will demonstrate his supremacy over against the false gods of the, of the land and the nations. In fact, it says in verse 2, the Lord your God is going to give them over to you. We're reading here the sovereign description of, of uh, God's act to come. He will be giving them over. That's what you read about in Joshua when they take Jericho or when they take Ai or when they take any of these other places in the land of promise. You're reading about God giving them the, uh, the land and you will defeat them. You must devote them to complete destruction. This language is interesting because Joshua and Judges demonstrate that there are inhabitants from the promised land that remain. The Israelites do not destroy every individual in the land. This is military language that's meant to convey you need to subdue and conquer the enemies of Yahweh. And that would hopefully lead to, to Canaanites like Rahab or others turning to Yahweh and abandoning their idols. But this complete destruction is a view toward God's dominion being established in the land. In the Garden of Eden, so we're going way back for a moment, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve failed to subdue the evil one, the creeping thing that lied and deceived. And, is, and then Adam and Eve are exiled from this sacred space. 
the Israelites are going into a sacred space. It's not Eden, but it's like echoes of Eden where they're to exercise dominion and subdue what is wicked. They are to overcome evil. They are to subdue idols and the glory of God and the right worship of God must be established in the land. They are like a corporate Adam. They're like a national Adam going in to this place where they're called to be faithful to God in covenant with God. And he says at the end of verse 2, you shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Whew, that sounds strong. Anybody sort of bristle under that language? It's that strong language. You shall show them no mercy. You say, wait a second. Wait a second. Uh, what about God is slow to anger and abounding in love and you've got a steadfast love and mercy for the penitent? But he says in the revelation of his character, he also will not hold guiltless those who hate him and despise his covenant. This means if the Canaanites persist in their idolatry, refuse to worship God, and receive the reaping for their sins they have sown, then that's what this looks like. Because they certainly don't deserve mercy. They will receive the justice of Yahweh. So he says, you shall show no mercy to them. It is God's decree that justice will be done in the land through the rod of his judgment, the Israelites. Making no covenant probably means no peace treaty. You're not to go in and they say, hey, listen, okay, we'd like to keep our gods and you want to worship Yahweh. And what if we draw this line here and you stay on your side and we'll stay on our side and we can just shake hands and make this agreement. And we'll leave you alone and you leave us alone. He says, you're not to do that. You're not to go in making agreements with them. And that's because a higher covenant exists. They can't make a covenant that's going to transcend the one they have with Yahweh. It must not in any way. And that means when they make no covenant with them or show no mercy to them, it's God's commands to them that are to shape their conquesting behavior. In verses 3 and 4, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. In other words, go into the land and prepare to conquer or compromise and prepare to be conquered by Yahweh. He will overcome you with your belligerence and your stubbornness if you go into the land and you want to do it your way. He says in verses 3 and 4, here's what you shouldn't do. Well, there's all these potential suitors in the land among these Canaanites, Canaanite men, Canaanite women. And, you know, we've got children and they need, they need uh, marriages. And so let's just make some arrangements. He says, don't do that. And the problem isn't that they're Canaanites. The problem is they're not God worshipers. The issue is one of idolatry. Idolatry reverberates as a concern throughout Deuteronomy 7. Idolatry is a reason for God's judgment. It's not something to be overlooked in a potential marriage partner. This is a reason God is bringing judgment into the land. So it is no light thing to say, well, what if we enter into a marriage covenant with someone who hates Christ? To modernize it, if you will, as a new covenant reader. In verses 3 and 4, he says, don't intermarry. So not only are you not to make covenants with them in peace treaties in verse 2 in a way, you're also not to encourage and facilitate the kind of coming together with sons and daughters mixing uh, what would turn out to be religious allegiances. And here's the warning. In verse 4, for they would turn away your sons from following me. But, but what if the parents thought, but listen, listen, I'm, my daughter's going to be the influence on him. You know, my daughter's going to influence him. And so my, my God-loving and God-fearing daughter is going to help him come to know the living God. Or, or the parents think, oh, but my son who loves the Lord, uh, he, he's going to help her. He's going to help her follow the Lord. She's going to leave her idols. The warning is that they 
will turn your sons away from following me. So don't pretend you're smarter than the Bible. This says with a warning not to test the Lord and presume on some better future outcome. If we will just do it our way. He says the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. And he'll destroy you quickly. What you should do in verses 5 and 6 is this. Thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars, chop down their asherim, and burn their carved images with fire. I think he means this literally. I think he means this literally. Now there have been some interpreters in church history that have tried to read this allegorically as if it means something other than actually going to those altars and tearing them down. Now there might be other metaphorical implications to draw out. I do think it literally means to go in and tear down these idle places. I think they're literally not to remain. Which is why it's so shocking in First and Second Kings when you read of Israelite rulers in the northern kingdom or sons of David ruling in the southern kingdom where it says they rebuilt the high places. Or they reinstated those earlier worship, those worship sites that their, maybe their predecessor had torn down. You start to wonder, did these people really take Deuteronomy 7 seriously? As, as if these idol places are things to be brought down and later set back up and later brought down. He says, break down their altars. Now, altars are solid places to offer sacrifices. The ancient world had places where they would give offerings, these altars, and therefore where there's a clear idol shrine, where there's an altar to be given, he says, just tear that down. Tear it down. It would make sense. Break down the altar. And then the language of uh, dashing in pieces their pillars, a pillar would likely be something larger than an altar. One writer says that it was probably more like standing stones used in the ancient world to commemorate an event or to serve as a witness to something. And so whether representing the relationship between an idol and the idolater or representing some sort of uh, important theological point or milestone in their faith or journey in a spiritual sense, these pillars were not markers of remembrance that should stand. And this picture like, okay, going into the conquest and it's just demo day all day long. Okay, we're just taking sledgehammers and we're just going at these idle places and we're going at these stone pillars and we're dashing them in pieces. Chop down their asherim. Even the verb here, chop down, makes sense with what they are because asherim were trees. These were like poles, tree-like things that were associated with the goddess Asherah. So the Asherim were connected to some idol, and they were wooden. So to chop down is the right verb to use. You're breaking down the altar. You're dashing in pieces the pillars, chopping down the Asherim. But then there are other crafted things of silver or gold or bronze. What are you going to do with these very carefully carved images? He says, well, you're going to burn those in the fire. You're going to put those in the fire. Because what's the fire going to do to the gold, silver, and bronze images? It's going to melt them. It's going to melt them. This is to symbolize Israel's obedience and the establishment of right worship of Yahweh in the land. In verse 6, the reason is given. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. That's why they're to go at these unholy places in the way they will. Because they are a holy people. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. That treasured possession language is reminding us from Exodus 19 who the people are. In Exodus 19, he bore them up on eagles, like on wings of eagle, and he is uh, carrying them and bearing them up, and they are his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests. And in, uh, in Exodus 19, it seems to be echoed here in Deuteronomy 7 6. Who are they? Well, out of the Exodus, they are to be a people shaped by that redemptive event. 
They're going into the promised land and they must take their identity with them. In other words, you have to remember who they are so that wherever they are, they're honoring and glorifying God and subduing what is wicked. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, they've been set apart as a holy people. The significance of their role among the nations is that they're going to be a light and a a demonstration of right worship and law keeping to the nations who don't know God. So God willing, what would happen is the Israelites are going to go into the land and they would show here's the right way to worship. It's not with these stone pillars. It's not with those trees. It's not with those altars. Here is the way Yahweh is to be worshipped. They would have a tabernacle and later a temple, a sacrificial system and a priesthood from Levi's tribe. Various theological and, and deeply rooted in the Old Testament practices they're taking with them in the land. And then they're to also, as a holy people, demonstrate right conduct. The nations might live in certain ways, pursuing certain sins. And the Israelites, as a holy people, are to show in our covenant with Yahweh, we do not do these things. We are a holy people, we're a redeemed people, and we have his law for our, for our good and our flourishing. Now, in verses 7 to 11, we move from this language about uh, the coming conquest to the covenant love of God undergirding all of this. And I must tell you that in verses 7 and 8, what we have here is one of the most staggering descriptions in the Old Testament of God's love for his people. Okay, I love these verses. Think about the logic unfolding here. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Some people have said that Deuteronomy 7 is like the Ephesians 2 of the Old Testament. We're in Ephesians 2. We were dead in our trespasses and sins and God made us alive in his great love and mercy. We love the truth of Ephesians 2. This is like their testimony. Why are they the Israelites? They are a people not because God looked upon them and saw how great they were. They actually were not. They were not impressive. There wasn't something about them as a nation that conditioned his love to them. What you have here is a demonstration of God's sovereign election of them. His sovereign love put upon them. He says, it was not because you were more in number. Because maybe from a worldly perspective, somebody might wonder that. Because they started out quite few, but they're mighty right now. I mean, they've made a a lot of progress, generation by generation. All that fruitfulness and multiplication. And if they were to say, well, you know, maybe because of how great a number we are, that's why God loves us. This is to illustrate that it wasn't something about them that caused the love of God to be set upon them. And you enter, in with Deuteronomy 7 here, into the mystery of the sovereign love of God, where God for his own purposes and will, and not conditioned upon sinners, has he moved upon us in love. In fact, when we, if we were to say, okay, if it's not because they were more in number that God set his love and chose them, then why? He says, it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. And as um, one Old Testament scholar named Daniel Block once said, uh, Dr. Block says, when you read Deuteronomy 7 verses 7 and 8, it sort of sounds like God loves you because he loves you. And that's not really wrong. You know, as, a, as an understanding here. Like, so he, he doesn't set his love upon you because you're the fewest in number. But it is because, in verse 8, 
the Lord loves you. So there is a a rootedness in the sovereign purposes of God that is not penetrated here by human knowledge. Rather, a revelation of His kindness and His mercy upon the people of God. This is an Old Testament illustration of what we celebrate in the New Testament, in the writings of Paul, and in the Gospel of John, and many other places that exalt the sovereign love and grace of God toward people. We should not look upon our lives and think, I wonder what it was about me, if I could figure it out of what he saw in me that caused his love to be set upon me. Friend, the illustration from the Old Testament here about Israel is that God's sovereign love was not conditioned upon us. And then in verse 8, not only are they reminded of God's love for them, but his promise keeping. He's made promises to keep faithful, uh, to, to show his faithfulness to, and promises to keep. Keeping an oath, he swore to your fathers. And these fathers that, he, uh, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So there are redeemed people shown love from God who has taken them out of their enslavement. And in verse 9, he says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. Here's an application for you. Know that the Lord your God is God. Not the Asherim and not the pillars. They're to go into the land with clear-sightedness. With theologically clear eyes. Who is God? Yahweh alone is God. The Lord our God is God. The faithful God. Who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. So it's referencing there that Sinai covenant where God has pledged His faithfulness to them. He's called them to be faithful to Him. And if they were to deviate from the covenant and reject His law, in verse 10, He repays to their face those who hate Him. So if they see the covenant steadfast promises of the Lord, and they say, I do not want that. I want what I want. I want to worship what I want. I want to live how I want. Then they will reap what they sow in a way that that's said in verse 10 is, he repays them to their face. Sounds very personal. Divine judgment is personal. It is not general. It's not ambiguous. It's personal. He repays to their face those who hate him. Notice the heart of the people being described here. Those who are judged by God are those who hate God. Those who love God will never be judged by God. They love God. Their heart esteems God. They worship God. Those who love God want to obey God. But those who hate God, they will reap what they have sown. And the hatred, stirred by their own love of sin, will lead to judgment. He will repay them by destroying them. And he will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. It's to say there in verse 10, the certainty of divine judgment upon the wicked. They should not imagine that they will escape. And if any of the Israelites say, well, I know my parents love the Lord. I know I have siblings who love the Lord. But I don't want to follow the covenant commands of Yahweh. I want to do my own thing. Then they will face the judgment of God. Because in their heart, not loving God is hatred of God. In verse 11, he says, You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules I command you today. No doubt that includes the Ten Commandments. But much more of Deuteronomy awaits, doesn't it? The Israelites are to get a lot of instructions from Moses to lay out what their life should consist of. And therefore, being careful to do means I want to be attentive. If God has said something that's going to matter to me, we ought to marvel at the fact that we have a Bible with 66 books, inspired of the Holy Spirit for us to read and study, to memorize and learn from, to peruse and grow and deepen in the older we get. 
We should be careful to think about the laws of God. We should be careful to notice his revelation in his word. Careful to consider the unfolding of his truth from Genesis to Revelation. When he says in verse 11, you shall be careful to do the commandment. You're careful with things that matter to you. You're careful with things that are important. You don't want to be slippery with it. You don't want to be careless with it. You want to be diligent with it. Careful with it. Attentive to it. That's the idea with verse 11. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules I command you today. They should think if God has brought us into covenant with himself, then everything he says matters more than anything else. Like if God has spoken, then I must give my attention to this. Moving from the covenant language in verses 7 to 11, we see covenant blessings brought up in verses 12 to 16. Verses 12 to 16, the covenant blessings from God. And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love he swore to your fathers. Now, the keeping of that covenant looks like blessings on the part of the Lord. Here's what he's promised. Walk in wisdom, turn from wickedness, follow my commands, love my law, love uh, the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might. Love the Lord And you will know the blessing of the Lord. That following God on the way of wisdom and experiencing the blessing of God in the life of knowing Him is what is meant. When he says in verse 12, because you listen to these rules and keep them and do them, God will keep with you the covenant that He swore. What will it look like for God to keep covenant on His part? What has He pledged to do? Verses 13 through 16 lay that out. He will love you, bless you, And multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground. Pausing for a moment, you think about how they want their families to multiply. The blessing of God will be upon their homes. They are going to be working the ground and they're going to be hoping agriculturally to have success. The blessing of God will be with them economically and agriculturally. Your grain and your wine and your oil, I think that all demonstrates the blessing of God from their produce. Your grain, your wine, and your oil. It's like a land flowing with milk and honey, in other words. The increase of your herds and the young of your flock. In other words, inside the household isn't the only thing being fruitful. So you've got the animals and the livestock around you. He says, I'm going to bless what belongs to you. Your possessions and the blessing of God. Your herds, the young of your flock. In this land I swore to your fathers to give you. In fact, it's going to stand out so profoundly that he can say this in verse 14. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. Consider the testimony that these houses and lands would be able to bear to the Canaanites around them. Here is knowledge of the living God. These other things about fruitfulness of the ground and increase in herds. A lot of these uh, fruitful passages about uh, grain and wine and oil would be dependent on the watering of the land from the skies. And the Canaanites, one of the ways they would try to ensure this is that they would worship Baal. Baal worship was in the effort to secure the blessing of the gods, the blessing of Baal in particular, on their produce, on their land. And he's saying here, you don't need Baal. There is no Baal. Baal can't help you. Baal can't bless you. Baal can't hear you. 
Baal doesn't exist. So tear down the pillars and the altars to things like Baal. And you should instead love Yahweh and demonstrate faithfulness to the nations. You will know the blessing of God. And above all the peoples, you will be seen as blessed. And then in verse 15, the Lord will take away from you all sickness. None of the diseases, none of the evil diseases of Egypt, which you knew, will he inflict on you. But he will lay them on all who hate you. They're being promised here extraordinary things in their covenant life with Yahweh. That uh, while sins and disobedience might bring about a variety of things that even Egypt experienced in its plagues and judgments, none of those things will be upon the Israelites. They will not know the plagues of divine judgment. They will know the blessings of steadfast love. That's what they will know. But he will lay on all who hate you the other things. Those evil diseases of Egypt remind you of those plagues in the book of Exodus, doesn't it? All those who hate you, this reminds us of Genesis chapter 12. Those who bless you, God says to Abraham, I will bless. But him who curses you, I will curse. So to position yourself not just against Abraham, but against the seed of Abraham, it's to position yourself against the Abrahamic covenant and line. And therefore, those who hate you, the Israelites, they will position themselves against the Lord in doing so. And then in verse 16, And you shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you. Your eyes shall not pity them. Sounds like show them no mercy that we heard about earlier. Your eyes shall not pity them. Neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. He's wanting them to consider their well-being to motivate them. It would be a snare to you if you didn't take this seriously, he says. Now, maybe they would have people in their midst to say, but I feel so sorry for these Canaanites. But God, who knows all things, knows what is right and just to administer in their midst. These people do not know better than God knows. And if God has said, you are the rod of my judgment in this land of Canaan, where generations of iniquity have piled up, and now the time for righteous judgment will now be executed, then consume now the peoples God will give to you, and do not pity them. God has deigned them for judgment. You shall not serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. The end of our passage is one other paragraph, verses 17 to 26, uh, the rest of our chapter that is, Verses 17 to 26, the promise of victory. We've thought about the coming conquest. We've looked at the love of God. Uh, we've looked at uh, uh, these particular, this particular language in verses 12 through 16 about his blessings, the covenant blessings. And now the promise of victory, which returns to the concern at the beginning of the chapter. Coming full circle, he says in verse, uh, verse 17, If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I. How can I dispossess them? Now, there's an understand, understanding there, isn't there? If you, if you imagine the perspective of the Israelites, they look at these people, and they sound a lot like Numbers 13 and 14, hypothetically, where they look at the majority report of the spies who said, those fortresses are too big, and those people are too mighty, and the giants in the land, and, or there's no way we can do it. He says, so let's say, let's say you start being tempted to think about things like your ancestors did. You start thinking in your heart, these nations are so great. They're greater than I. How can I dispossess them? You shall not, in verse 18, you shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. 
One writer puts it this way. The remedy for fear is memory. The remedy for fear is memory. He says, if you say in your heart, I'm afraid. How can I dispossess them? They're so mighty. I want you to think about what God did to mighty Pharaoh. I want you to start thinking backward and remembering the power of the Lord, his faithfulness, his covenant promises, and what God does. And when he promises and says that something's going to happen, this is a promise of victory. And so when you say, I'm afraid, well, you didn't escape Egypt on your own, did you? And you're not going to take the promised land on your own, are you? In other words, from start to last, It's the power of God and His faithfulness that's on display. So if they say, how can I dispossess them? Well, the whole point is, it is not by your power any of this has happened. You shall not be afraid of them, but shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. The great trials, in verse 19, that your eyes saw. There are some people now with Moses that are older, who have grown up in the wilderness, but were young in the days of the Exodus. And they remember. It's the kind of thing that sticks with you. The signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples whom you're afraid. So he says, I'm a, he says if you think, I'm afraid of these people, then think backward. Remember what God did. Because your remembrance of the power and faithfulness of God will help you persevere into the fear. It might not make the fear go away. But you can preach to yourself, God doesn't make promises he's not going to keep. He's made promises and he's going to keep them. Because he's God, he's faithful. In verse 20, Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them until those those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. It's unclear how literal or figurative this hornets language should be. These actual hornets... Could be. We certainly know the plagues in Egypt could take on what would look like pests and plague-like situations where where flying things were causing a lot of havoc and difficulty. And and so literal hornets among them, where people are recognizing something unusual and extraordinary is in their midst, driving them out like a judgment in the midst. Or hornets, like in some of the prophetic language, could represent military strength and might because a hornet stings You don't want to have to play with those things. And if the Israelites are the rod of God's wrath, then it's like God sending hornets among the Canaanites could be the judge and the sting that the Israelites will bring through their obedience in the conquest. Unto those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. Verse 21, you shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst. Why will I not be afraid? Not only because of what God has done in the past, He is also with me in this very present moment. I can remember what He's done, and I can remember where He's at. He is not removed and aloof. He is with me, and therefore will be faithful. For the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. The awesomeness of their God is a remedy to the fearsomeness of their enemies. Their their enemies do seem great, but God is awesome. God is greater. God's awesomeness is greater than any intimidating posture they could muster with all their military might combined. They are as nothing compared to God. So the point is, Israelites, don't compare yourselves with them. Compare them with the Lord. Think of them as Goliath meeting David in the stone. 
not in terms of David's great strength, but because of the power of God in the swing. The awesomeness of their God, a remedy to the fearsomeness of their enemies. The Lord your God, in verse 22, will clear away these nations before you little by little. You may not make an end of them at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. We recognize that this would not be an overnight thing, but the Israelites were to be patient. How many of us realize that's difficult for us when the things happening in our lives are little by little? We might like them to be a lot faster. A number of uh, Old Testament and New Testament writers talk about verses like this as the, the needful trust in the Lord as He does His good and glorious work in our lives little by little, sustaining us and guiding us little by little. And He says here, The Lord your God will clear away these nations from before you. You're not going to go to bed one night though and wake up and they're all gone. In fact, you're going to have to persevere. You're going to have to trust the Lord and you're going to have to hold fast and you're going to have to stand firm and you're going to have to keep going in faith lest these wild beasts go, grow too numerous for you. Wild beasts there maybe representing figuratively the, the nations and their snares and idolatries, maybe even literal beasts and uninhabited terrain that need to be subdued. The Israelites are to exercise dominion and not let what is wild and wicked and ungodly run amok and overthrow and overrun. Little by little, one writer says, the promise continues to be relevant in the lives of God's believing people. Because God's faithfulness is recognized in our lives, in our day-to-day, little-by-littleness of living, isn't it? In verse 23, the Lord says, I mean, Moses says, The Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they're destroyed. If the Israelites say, but you know, they're better at hand-to-hand combat, or they have mightier weapons, or their chariots or this, they can try to give any sort of uh, physical or military reason for it. But if God brings them into confusion, he's doing something directly upon the minds of the Canaanites that the Israelites can't control. Think about uh, mighty Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, who in his arrogance and, and, uh, and self-presumption was looking at the glories of Babylon that he himself had built. And he rejected the warnings of Daniel, and the Lord took away his reasoning mind and gave him the mind of a beast for a season of time. When he says here, the Lord is going to throw them into confusion, you don't have to worry about the how, you just need to believe in the who. You just need to trust the Lord. And trust that whatever means the Lord is going to bring about His plan, you be faithful, you be faithful, and let the Lord accomplish His will that He's promised to do. You may not make, an, uh, he says in verse 23, rather, He will give them over to you and throw them into confusion until they're destroyed, and He'll give their kings into your hand. And you shall make their name perish from under heaven. The big goal of the conquest was to overthrow the fortresses. Where the military might would bring hostility against the Israelites. And the various kings in the south and the north of the promised land needed to be overcome. Here's the promise of that. Verse 24. He's going to give those kings into your hand. He's going to give them. It's like, you're, it's like someone saying, here, let me hand this to you. And you stick out your hand. He's like putting it right there. He's going to give that to you. He's going to give those kings into your hand. Well, you know, how, is that, how does that look? Well, he shall, you shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you've destroyed them. It sounds like a coming together of both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. God is going to give them into your hand. Okay, so I don't have to do anything? No, you have to destroy them. 
<laughs> you have to stand. You have to go. You have to fight. No one's going to be able to stand against you. So, okay, so as, as I walk in faith, trusting God's power, and as I am exercising this dominion and subduing the land, he's going to give those kings. Yes, it's exactly how it's going to work. So you're not passive here. You're waiting on the Lord and trusting with activeness. And you are following his commands. And when he says, no one shall be able to withstand you until you've destroyed them, you need to believe the Lord. And then the last couple verses, they say, the carved images of their gods, you shall burn with fire. Doesn't that sound like earlier you're to tear down the altars and you're to burn the idols? Burn them with fire. You shall not covet the silver or gold that's in on them or take it for yourselves lest you be ensnared by it, for it's an abomination to the Lord your God. You shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it's devoted to destruction. So you have to be very careful here because some of these things made out of very precious metals, somebody might say, what if I just like take that though? I mean, I'm not going to worship it, but my goodness, like that's lovely. Uh, He's to say, you're not looking at the images of their gods and coveting those materials. Don't covet the silver or the gold that's in them. Don't take it for yourselves lest you be ensnared by it. In other words, idolatry really isn't neutral. Yes, the gods themselves are no gods at all, but the principalities and powers that deceive and ensnare, the idols represent sinister things that seek to deceive and destroy. And here, these things are detestable to Yahweh. So he says, you don't want to take what's abominable and say, but I think that would look good in my house. The Asherah poles are not going to look good with your decor. And the stone pillars, you say, well, these would be great seats for my guests in the living rooms. The stone pillars aren't going to be for that. You've got to tear those down. The golden idols will not make good bookends for your shelves. You've got to burn those things. You don't, you don't think, well, I could reappropriate these idols for things in my house. He says, don't do that. Don't do that. Because it's detestable to Yahweh, those things. And therefore, to demonstrate your obedience to the uttermost, destroy the idols. They're devoted to destruction. Let's consider, as new covenant people, ways in which the old covenant foreshadows the realities that are to come. Because we look at a section like this, a whole chapter dealing with conquest themes. A lot of strong language about going in and bringing absolute judgment on the idolaters in the land. Consider with me several points, and then we'll close. The blessings of the promised land foreshadow the glories of the new creation. You see this old covenant that is promising things like no sickness and fruitfulness and the grain and the wine and the produce, all the things that seem to be part of this sacred space. Not only are those echoes of Eden... Eden and the promised land and the storyline of God's word foreshadow the glories of a new heavens and new earth yet to come. These blessings of the promised land are very enthralling and and something to rejoice in. And these blessings foreshadow the glories of the new creation. As, As those in the new covenant, we recognize that there are challenges that remain in our corruptible bodies and living in a fallen world. All is not well, but the way things are is not the way they will be. These blessings that these Israelites heard about, these are but tastes of a land that will permeate the cosmos, a new heavens and a new earth, a new Jerusalem. Consider as well that the judgments and the conquest foreshadow things as well. 
The judgment of the conquest foreshadows the ultimate judgment of God upon the wicked. The Israelites are to go into the land. They're the rod of God's judgment. And the wicked in the land who turn from the Lord, they're going to be subdued and, and destroyed. And that reality anticipates a final judgment. The, the issues of the ban or, or giving things over devoted to destruction, all of that anticipates what one writer calls the judgments of hell, where this ban or devoted to destruction principle comes to its final manifestation. The everlasting state of condemnation is the full outworking of what these things glimpse. Consider as well the moral problem of idolatry that persists. Maybe not with Asherah poles, but even at the end of 1 John 5, my little children, keep yourselves from idols. The ongoing temptation that as people, not under the old covenant, but even in the new covenant, the wooing of things in the world to say, live for this, treasure this in your heart, make this what your whole life is about. Define yourself in this way. Oh, the danger of idolatry persists, including the danger morally of marrying those who don't love Christ. Where we would say, well, what would be a, a match for me? What if I pursue this person? I don't care about their spiritual state. I just know that I love the Lord and I want to have good influence on them. Well, the warnings under the old covenant remain in the new covenant as well. In 1 Corinthians 7, those who marry should marry in the Lord. Consider as well that the Israelites were a holy people. Well, that corporate identity is applied in the New Testament to the people of God. We're a holy people conquesting our sin and flesh. Reminding us of Romans 8.13, to mortify the deeds of the flesh, to put to death the deeds of the body. Our concern is not Jericho and Ai. It's the mortal body and the flesh and our life in Adam that seeks to woo and have dominion over us. John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. The Lord is sanctifying us little by little, isn't it? Little by little. That, that particular theme where the Israelites were experiencing the victory of God, if they just keep trusting the Lord, keep looking to the Lord, that little by little is so much of how sanctification feels in our life, isn't it? The Israelites were to remember the victory of the Exodus because there are things that will make us afraid. And we will look at it and we will say, how can I with this before me? And he says to them, you need to not fear. You need to start thinking. You need to start remembering. You need to start thinking about the presence of God with you, the victories of God behind you, and we have more than just the Exodus. We remember not only the Exodus, we remember the cross, the victory of the Lord Jesus, so that as we prepare for spiritual battle and warfare against spiritual powers and principalities and don our lives with an armor of God and to mortify the deeds of the flesh, we are those who remember the cross and we fight from a position of victory. The victory of Christ which is ours in union with him. I think Martin Luther is right in his hymn, A Mighty Fortress. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. Let's pray.